$22.6 billion. That is the amount of money that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has generated in the last decade. $22.6 billion. That by far makes it the highest grossing movie franchise of all time, beating its competition pretty impressively because the next highest is Star Wars with a paltry $9 billion in comparison. So I think it's pretty safe to say if we look across our culture that there are a lot of Americans who are pretty obsessed and pretty interested with superheroes, right? And when we think about uh, the word Marvel, they've kind of hit it on the head. So when we hear the word Marvel, what do we think of? Probably the superheroes, the comic books, the movies. But the word Marvel is actually another word in the English language that is a verb. And the verb marvel actually means to have an intense interest in admiration for something. That's what marvel means. So when the creators of marvel chose that name, they want you to have an intense interest and fascination and admiration for their characters. And I think they've done a pretty successful job with that. Some of Marvel, Marvel superheroes are some of the most well-known figures in our society, believe it or not. Let me just prove that point to you for a moment. I have a little clip here from one of the first Avengers movies. I'm going to play it. I want you to think of how many of these characters you can name. How many characters can you name? Okay, what do you guys think? How many of those can you name? How many of you can name all six of them? Okay, that's like most everyone in the room, right? Okay, here's my next question. I know you had the day off of school, but we're going back to history, okay? How many of you could name any or the majority of our Supreme Court justices? How many can name all of them? One hand. We have one person that... How many can name half of them? A couple hands. No one under the age of 40. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding. But I think it's to say Marvel is... Living up to its name when it can convince an entire nation it's more important to know its superheroes than your Supreme Court justices. So think about what some of the attributes are that we oftentimes marvel at when we're watching superhero movies. Sometimes it can be their strength. Sometimes it could be the wit that they deploy with their humor. Maybe some of you marvel at the ability to go through an action sequence and your hair and makeup is still perfectly intact in every scene. Whatever it is, you know, marvel wants us to have some admiration for its characters. But tonight, we are going to talk about a far more important quality than those that I've just listed. Tonight, I want us to identify one quality in Scripture that says it, it caused Jesus to marvel at another person, which is a pretty important thing. If we look in scripture and there's an attribute that Jesus marvels at, I think that should be pretty high on our list to rightly identify and embody. So what is that attribute? Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 to find out. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background to this particular passage. So Matthew chapter 8 comes immediately after one of Jesus' high points in ministry where he delivers his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of chapter 7, at the end of Jesus' sermon, all of the people that were listening to it were absolutely astounded by the words that he had just spoken. And what exactly was it that they were astounded by? Was it Jesus' uh, Jesus amazing ability to weave humor perfectly throughout his sermon? 
Was it Jesus' perfect use of anecdotes and illustrations and stories right at the right moment? Was it Jesus' you know, just powerful voice booming across the thousands of people gathered around there? No, it wasn't any of those things. They were astounded because Jesus taught as a person who had authority. That's the key word. He had authority. You see, Jesus wasn't just reading scripture. He wasn't just interpreting scripture. He was getting up and speaking as if he had the very authority of God. He was speaking as if he was giving new revelation. He was giving new commands. And he was speaking as if God was giving him the right and the authority and the power to deliver these words. And they were absolutely astounded. The key word there is authority. And that theme of Jesus' authority is actually a a theme we see traced throughout the entire gospel of Matthew. Everyone wants to know by what authority Jesus is saying the things he's saying and doing the miracles he's performing. That's a question that we see all throughout the gospel of Matthew. And at one point, a lot of people who are jealous of Jesus come up with their own version of where Jesus' authority comes from. Some of Jesus' chief rivals, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were kind of the, the, the antagonists, the bad guys in the Gospel of Matthew. They say, we know where Jesus gets his authority from. He gets his authority from Satan. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the, priest, the chief of demons. So when Jesus is, is displaying his authority, authority, there's two different responses that people oftentimes have. There's the wrong response that the Pharisees had of rejection and disbelief. But then tonight we're going to see the right response to Jesus' authority in a very unlikely character. In our passage, we encounter a man who really by no estimation should have really had any interaction with Jesus but he defies all cultural expectations. So let's read his story together tonight, starting in verse 5, going through uh, verse 13. And when he, being Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. And he said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I hope you realize how radical this passage would be to the original audience. How radical this would be that Jesus is marveling at someone, but not just anyone. He's marveling at a centurion. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But in the New Testament, there's only one time where Jesus marvels at another person for a good reason. And it's this passage. There's only one other time where Jesus marvels, and it's not for a good reason. He marvels at the people that lived in Nazareth after all of the things that he had taught there and all the miracles he performed. He marveled that they still rejected him and did not obey him. He marveled at their disbelief. 
So when we think about Jesus marveling at this centurion servant, it's so important to realize that this is the last person you would ever expect. If you were a good first century Jew and you were asking who God might marvel at, you would probably be thinking the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, maybe a famous theologian like Gamaliel. These are the big hitters. These are the hall of famers in kind of the Jewish faith. Of course, if anyone's pleasing God, it's going to be these guys. But you know who would be at the absolute bottom of your list? It would be a centurion. The Jews absolutely despised the centurion. I mean, first of all, centurions were Gentiles. They weren't even part of God's chosen people. They were viewed as dirty and unclean and inferior. But he wasn't just any Gentile. He was also part of the Roman military. As a centurion, he would have had command over about 80 different Roman soldiers. And during that time, this time in history, Israel was no longer an independent nation. They were actually under Roman occupation, a thing that the Jews absolutely resented and tried to rebel against many times. So when they saw a centurion, they viewed it as a symbol, that person as a symbol of cruelty, oppression, and enslavement. They would have had an absolute prejudice against a Gentile centurion. So if there's anybody that they imagine that God is displeased with, it would have to be this man. So here's the thing. He's one of the most unlikely characters of all, but what was the quality of his life that caused Jesus to marvel? Well, it's really quite simple. It was the centurion's faith. When Jesus looks at him, he says, I have not found faith like yours in all of Israel. You have the most faith in me that I have ever encountered. Even though no one would expect a Gentile centurion to believe and trust in a Jewish Messiah as the Son of God, he defies all expectations. Even though he knows uh, his knowledge of Jesus was limited and he acted on that limited knowledge and put his trust in Jesus fully. The centurion servant embodies Hebrews 11.6, which says, And without faith it's impossible to please God. And notice He didn't try to please Jesus by brandishing a resume when he first encountered Jesus. He didn't try to pull out all his credentials and his titles and his power and his influence. He didn't even try to point to his moral record and say, look, I know that we have a bad reputation, but I promise I'm a really good centurion. He didn't do any of those things. He impressed Jesus. He caused Jesus to marvel simply by having marvelous faith. So tonight, with the rest of our time, we're going to look at four different characteristics that we see from his story that constitute having marvelous faith in the eyes of Jesus. I hope for all of us here tonight, that is our heart's greatest desire. I hope that we desperately desire to have a faith that causes Jesus to say, yes, you're doing it. That's what I want. That's exactly who I've created you to be. I hope and pray that if Jesus was here tonight looking across us, he would marvel, but he would marvel for the right reasons. We don't want to be like the Nazarenes who he marvels over because of their disbelief when they had been given so much. So as we jump into our passage, let's look back at a few of these verses to understand our first attribute of marvelous faith. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So right off the bat, we get to see that the centurion makes a request to Jesus. 
and realize that just by seeing this request, it's something that's showing that this is not a normal centurion. He comes to Jesus on behalf of whom? His servant, right? And that word servant there is kind of like a wimpy translation. The ESV was punting there a little bit. It's not really servant. A better understanding there would be bond servant or a household slave. That's the person that he's coming on behalf of. Now, during this time, if you were a Roman uh, government official or high in the military, they oftentimes had many household servants or bond servants that were in their custody. Essentially, a servant was the property of that person. And the leaders didn't have a very high view of their servants. In the Greco-Roman world, the average slave owner had no more regard for their slave than they would for an animal. In fact, Roman writers from that times have recorded that the only difference between a slave, a beast, and a cart was that a slave could talk. That's actually things that we've seen in history. So no one would expect this Roman centurion to have care and compassion and a heart for his servant, the rich and the powerful. Oftentimes they were marked with indifference and hatred and a lack of empathy for the weak and the marginalized. That was the norm, but he was no normal centurion. When he heard his servant being in pain, when he knew that his servant was in so much agony that he was just laying there day after day and couldn't get up, his heart was moved with compassion. He had empathy. He loved his servant and he said, I don't care how far it is. I'm going to go find this Jewish rabbi named Jesus and I'm going to ask him to heal you. He's moved with love and compassion for his servant. That's our first quality of marvelous faith. We need to live in others-oriented life. The centurion lived in a self-centered society, but he was countercultural and put other people first. And if you haven't noticed, we live in a self-centered society. It is everywhere. Everywhere we turn, we're constantly being told to put ourselves first. The highest criteria that many people evaluate a decision with is how will this benefit me? How will this further my desires, my goals, my ambitions? That's just the type of society that we constantly live in. But even as Paul writes in Philippians 2, we as Christians are called to be completely opposite of that. Paul says that we are to do nothing from selfish ambition but, or conceit, but in humility we are to count other people as more significant than ourselves. We're called to be others-oriented in a self-centered society. And this centurion understood what it meant to count the needs of his servant more significant than his own. He didn't turn his back to his servant. He didn't say, you know what, you can just die. I'll go get another servant tomorrow. It really doesn't matter to me. He said, no, I value you. I care about you. I'm going to put your needs above my own. So the first question tonight really to ask if we have marvelous faith or not is, are we others-oriented or are we self-centered? If we were to honestly look at our lives, what would we see? Are we putting other people first? Are we reaching out and looking for the hurting and the marginalized and the weak in our society and saying, you know, I want to make a difference. I want to love them. I want to encourage them. Even within, within our families, with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends, do we put ourselves first expecting to be served or we put other people first and their needs above our own? Are we self-centered? Are we others-oriented? So we see that the centurion was other-oriented, but next we see that the centurion also had a humble heart. That's the second quality of marvelous faith, humility of heart. Look at verses 6 and 8. 
Notice how the centurion addresses Jesus those two, two different times. He goes up to him and what does he say? He says, hey, bro, right? No, he doesn't say that at all. No, what does he say? What does he say? He says, Lord, right? He says, Lord, both times there. He calls Jesus Lord out of a deep sense of reverence and respect for Jesus. When he approaches Jesus, he's essentially coming to Jesus and saying, I recognize your deity. I recognize that you ultimately are the Lord of the universe and you have complete authority over my life. This centurion happily humbles himself before Jesus Christ in order to receive his grace, his mercy, and his help. Now realize that was probably not an easy task. Remember who he was. He's a Roman centurion. He's very wealthy. He's very powerful. He's very influential. He has a lot of social clout. The temptation to be prideful would be pretty high. I mean, this is a guy that has complete authority over at least 80 other soldiers. When he says go, they go. When he says jump, they say how high. And the reality is powerful people are oftentimes prideful people. It just works that way. Powerful people are oftentimes prideful people because when we have power, we falsely start to believe that we have control over our lives and that we don't really need a savior. Just think about the humility it must have taken for the centurion to go to Jesus and ask for help. He rightly understood that his wealth, his power, his prestige, all of those things could do nothing to save his servant. Instead, he as the high and exalted Roman centurion would have to go and humble himself before the lowly Jewish leader. Yet he had no qualms about putting his pride aside and asking Jesus for help. He understood what James would later write, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The centurion rightly realized that I'm not the Lord of my life. Jesus, you are. You know, one of the biggest barriers in our lives to marvelous faith is oftentimes pride. I don't know about you, but I struggle with pride. We can be prideful people. And, our, and prideful people will never go to Jesus for help because we think that we've got this on our own. No one goes and asks help from a Savior when we think we can save ourselves. It's so easy for us to have pride buried deep within our heart. That's why scripture talks about it so many times. And pride, oftentimes, we think it's just a little sin. But scripture says it's not. God opposes the proud of heart. God detests a haughty heart. God says we can't have pride if we want to have marvelous faith in his eyes. So even though a lot of Christians tend to treat pride as kind of an insignificant thing, we really need to realize that's a major barrier in our relationship with Christ. But here's the hard part. Sometimes it can be really hard to diagnose pride in our lives. There's not a lot of proud people that say they're proud people, right? If I came up to you and said, are you proud? I'm guessing afterwards you're going to be offended by that and say no, right? Not a lot of us are like, yes, I am prideful. I see it everywhere. No. A lot of the times it goes on sneakily in our hearts. So what does it look like to be a proud person? How does that start to come out? Well, as a Christian, I think one of the easiest ways to see whether or not we're prideful is to examine our prayer lives. It's to examine our prayer lives. Do we treat prayer like a spare tire to pull out only in emergencies? Or do we constantly pray for God's help, God's provision, and God's guidance? It's crazy how a lot of the times we only go and pray when we feel like we're kind of at rock bottom. At that moment, we realize we're not in control. So, of course, we're going to pray and ask for God's help. But we're just as not in control when things are going well as when things are going badly. 
If we're only praying to Jesus in the valleys, then he's probably not really Lord on the hills. That's just how it is. So how's our prayer life communicate humility or pride in our lives? Not only that, I think proud people oftentimes can be identified by a care and concern more about what other people think about them than what God thinks about them. Proud people are oftentimes people pleasers because they get their identity off of being applauded by society, by fitting in, by being popular. They care more about what other people say than what God says. A proud person oftentimes hates to ask for help and they're offended when help is offered because they want to do it all on their own. They really don't enjoy help because why, why would you think I need help? I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I can do it. Stop offering my help. Do you think I'm weak? <laughs> a proud person says, I've got this on my own. A proud person loves to list off their accomplishments and titles and positions and power. They might do it in subtle ways, but they love to talk about themselves. It's really what excites them in a conversation. They'll throw you a question just so you ask the question back so they can brag about themselves. A proud person loves to talk about me. A proud person's only interested in relationships with people that are equal or above me in stature, but if I can't get something out of this relationship, I really don't care. Though I'm sure the centurion was tempted at times to allow pride to blind him to his need for Jesus, he set aside his pride and he humbly embraced his need to trust in Jesus fully. When Jesus comes to offer uh, when Jesus offers to come and heal the man's servant, he humbly replies, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. What a humble reply. But not only that, what a reply that showed that the centurion had a profound awareness of his unworthiness before Jesus. And that's the third attribute that we see of marvelous faith, having a, a, an awareness of our unworthiness. And you know, I think there's two elements of his unworthiness here. The first one is in ethnic unworthiness. Here he is, he is a Gentile centurion. He knows that the Jews view him as someone that is unclean. He's outside of the uh, Jewish religion. He has no claims and no rights to ask Jesus help. Not only that, when Jesus says, I will come to your house, he must know about enough about the Jewish law to realize that would cause the rabbi to come and be ceremonially unclean, which is a major taboo. For Jesus to go into the house of an unclean Gentile centurion broke all of the social norms. But once again, we see Jesus not being, uh, not being held down by those bad social norms, but defying those expectations and modeling what true love looked like. But it wasn't just an ethnic unworthiness. I think he also felt probably a, a moral unworthiness in Jesus' presence as well. He doesn't feel worthy to be in the presence of the Son of God. He doesn't feel worthy to have Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, enter into his home. As he comes face to face with Jesus, who is perfect, powerful, the sinless Son of God, he takes a deep look at himself in the mirror and he starts to see all of the sin and all of the brokenness and all of the errors in his own life. As soon as he sees Jesus for all that he truly is, he begins to see himself and all of his mistakes and brokenness as well. The centurion is overwhelmed with an awareness of his own unworthiness. Imagine it this way, okay? Imagine it this way. Let's say that you happen to be a caretaker, a lawn caretaker at, uh, let's just say the residence is at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, okay? For those of you that are under 30, that's the White House, okay? 
So you're a caretaker of the landscape at the White House. And let's say it's one particular day. You've been planting all sorts of stuff. It's been pouring down the rain. At the end of the day, you've got dirt packed up under your fingernails. You've got stains all over your well-worn jeans. You smell like the fertilizer that you've been handling all day, and you just feel absolutely disgusting, right? Well, let's say right at the end of your shift, you're getting ready to go to your car, and a person comes up dressed in all black with an earpiece and says, uh, I would like you to come with me. The president has requested to see you this afternoon. You're looking at yourself, and you say, do I have time to change? And they say, no, right? And you get summoned to the Oval Office, okay? So you walk into the Oval Office. Here you are. You've got muddy boots. You stink like fertilizer. You've got, you know, gunk under your fingernails. And you take a step in, and you see the pristine, beautiful, immaculate Oval Office, And right then you notice that the president is in a tuxedo because he's got a dinner that evening and he comes over and shakes your hand. And the moment he does, you look and there's black all over his hand. Your greasy mud has covered his hand in his tuxedo. And then he says, why don't you come over and sit down on the sofa? And as you walk across the cream-colored carpet, now there's like brownie-covered foot stains all over the carpet. And then he says, why don't you sit down on the sofa? And you know it's going to smell like fertilizer until they burn it if you sit down there. Underdressed is an understatement. And in that moment, you just feel like you're dirty and you don't quite belong and deserve to be there, right? I I think that's probably how the centurion's feeling in that moment. As he's surrounded by the pristine glory of Christ, as he's surrounded by the intense righteousness of our Savior, he looks around at himself and realizes, I have no right to be in your presence. Your help is not required of me, Jesus. It's a gift, and it's an act of mercy. Who am I that you would take notice of me, Jesus? I wonder how many of us have such an awareness of our unworthiness before the Lord. You know, my fear is that sometimes we can not feel this intense intense unworthiness before the Lord, but instead we can begin to feel an intense entitlement. How many of us run to Jesus and run to God with our list of do's and all these things that we want Jesus to do for us, but then we have a longer list of sins that we just never want to confess or take ownership of? How many of us go to God and we expect his material blessing because we're going through the, the checklist of the religious things that we need to do. We're worshiping, we're, we're going to church, and because of that, God has to bless me, and I'm entitled to this. I'm worthy. Give me the things that I, I deserve. How many of us get angry and are tempted to shake a fist when no one else is looking at, at God when he allows a trial to remain in our life that we really want gone. And we say, I don't get it, God. Why are you letting this remain if you really love me? I think sometimes we can go into God's presence with a profound sense of entitlement. Now, does God tell us to cast all of our cares and anxieties on him? Absolutely. Does God tell us that he will answer our prayers according to his will? Absolutely. Does God tell us that in trials, he is our rock and our fortress? Absolutely. But in those moments, that doesn't mean that we get to tell God how he is to act. We have to humbly come before Lord and say, I know that everything that you give me is an act of your grace and your mercy. I don't deserve it, but I need your help. And we have a heart like that. God is happy to come. Jesus is happy to help when we humbly come before him. I think of what Romans 5 says. 
that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't earn our salvation. We didn't merit God's love. Christ died for us while we were still in our sins and our trespasses and enslaved to our sin. But God loved us even in the midst of our unworthiness. One pastor says it this way, we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Our marvelous faith has an awareness of our unworthiness, but then a profound gratitude for God's grace and mercy and love in our lives. After the centurion admits his unworthiness, he then makes a confession of confidence in the absolute authority of Jesus. And that's our fourth and final characteristic of marvelous faith. It requires a uh, confident confession in the authority of Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, but only say the word. You You don't have to come to my house. Only say the word, Jesus, and I know that my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to the other, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. Now at first, this, these verses might seem a little weird. Like, okay, centurion, why are you off on this tangent about talking about giving people orders? What exactly is going on here? But with a little bit of context, I think it makes a lot more sense. The centurion is saying to Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. Because I know that even right now, even though we're miles away, if you just speak the word, my servant will be healed. You don't have to be present. The centurion servant saying, I believe that you can do long distance miracles, Jesus. And that might sound kind of ordinary to us because we get to read the gospels. But Jesus at this point had yet to do a long distance miracle. He hadn't done that before. And in the Old Testament, you don't see long distance miracles being done. So the centurion is saying, I've never seen this. I don't even know if it's possible, but I believe you can do it because I understand the type of authority you speak with. And then he gives an analogy from his life to say, this is why I get authority. The centurion says, look, I'm a a soldier. Not only that, I'm I'm a commander in the army. And because of that, even when I'm not there, if I tell my guys to do something, I know they're gonna do it. Because when I speak, I speak with the total weight and authority of the Roman Empire. When they view me, they see Caesar, and they better obey. He says, so I don't have to be there to know my orders are going to be followed because I have authority backing up my commands. Putting it in modern-day lingo, it would essentially be the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staffs, the highest-ranking military officer in the United States. And if you asked him, how confident would you be if you gave an order over to Afghanistan to our troops that it would be followed? You know what he would say? 100%. Why? You're 12,000 miles away. You're not there. How do you know unless you're flying a drone over and watching, right, and being a micromanager? How do you know it's actually going to happen? He's going to say, because when I speak, I speak with the full weight and power of the United States of America behind it. I have been given that authority, so I know what my word, when it's given, it will be obeyed. And that's exactly what the centurion says, I know Jesus That's the authority that you have. He says, when you speak, you speak with authority of God. To where if whatever you say, it will happen. No matter what, nothing is too hard for you because you speak with the authority of the God of the universe. All you have to do is say the word Jesus and I know it will be done. Do we have that kind of faith? (laughs) And he's right, you know. 
We see that later on in the passage. The servant's healed, just like that. And not only that, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus shows his power over nature. He shows his power over sin. He shows his power over spiritual warfare. He shows his power over death by being raised again after three days in the grave, conquering sin and death once and for all. Jesus has all of the authority and all of the power. But do we really live like that? Do we really live like that? When the storms of our lives hit, do we actually believe Jesus has the authority and the power to help? When that temptation comes into our life and we don't think we have the strength, but God's word tells us all we have to do is reach out to our faithful high priest who's happy to help. Do we really believe that he has the power to help us say no to that temptation? When that trial is going on in our life, do we really believe that God is in control? Or do we think, God, I think you've just kind of messed up and things are running awry. Help me understand this. God is in control. And we can trust him. And that's what the centurion is saying here. Jesus, you have all authority and your word is powerful. So as we conclude our thoughts here, as we think about embodying this type of marvelous faith, what are some different realities about the authority of Jesus that we can apply to our lives? Well, I think the first one is this. No matter what circumstances we're going through tonight, no matter what difficulties no matter what trials, God is in control. He is good and we can trust him. I know we can't always see the purpose in the pain, but God promises there is. And if we really believe Romans eight twenty eight, we know that God is weaving together those things for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. In the midst of whatever season we're in, we can know that God is in control and we can trust him. Second, it means for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus by turning away from our sin and putting our trust in Jesus, we know that we no longer have to fear death. When Jesus rose from the grave on the third day, he conquered sin and death once and for all. He proved that he has the authority over death and he can give us eternal life. And that's essentially what the end of our uh, passage was talking about. He says there will come a day where people will come from east and west and they will recline at the messianic table. They will recline in the kingdom. They'll be able to celebrate in the kingdom because they've trusted in me. We don't have to fear what happens after this life ends because we know with certainty where we are going through Christ. There's so many people in this world that don't have that certainty. There are a lot of people that are going throughout their entire lives wondering, have I done enough stuff? Have I somehow done enough to earn and merit God's forgiveness? Have I done enough good works to somehow make the cut and make it into heaven? But scripture tells us it's only by marvelous faith, it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone that we can have eternal life. We can have peace with God through Jesus. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. But then third, Jesus' absolute authority also means that we have the responsibility of obeying his commands. If we bear the name Christian, then Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we are now slaves to righteousness. If we truly bear the name of Christ, then Jesus, if he has absolute authority, that means he gets to have the authority in our lives. Jesus gets to call the shots. There's nothing that we get to hold back and say, you know what, I'm just going to keep this back from me. I really don't want to give this over. We have to submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus. I know at moments that can be hard. It's not an, always an easy thing. Struggling with sin is not fun. But the reality is that when we do life God's way, 
when we submit to Jesus' authority, when we truly pursue him, it's only then that we are going to experience the peace that surpasses all of understand, uh, all understand that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's only then that we'll be able to recognize that Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heaven laden, for I will give you rest. He takes those burdens away from us. So, you know, tonight we've learned what it takes to embody a faith that causes Jesus to marvel. It requires us to be others-oriented rather than self-centered. It requires us to have a humble dependence on Jesus instead of a prideful self-sufficiency. It requires us to have an awareness of our unworthiness instead of a false sense of entitlement. And it also requires us to have a confident confession and the authority of Jesus. This centurion servant modeled those things so well and so powerfully. But as we close out his story tonight, I also want to be reminded that he is an unlikely candidate. Here's a guy that most of the world probably would have written off when they thought of potential converts to Christianity. He's someone that had a lot of power. He was someone that was certainly not living a spiritual life up until this point. He was someone that really opposed the people of God in that moment. He's an unlikely candidate, but the reality is no one is beyond God's saving grace. So let that just encourage us for those in our life that we've been sharing the gospel with and maybe there just hasn't been that fruit yet. Don't give up. No one's beyond God's grace. And maybe you're out there tonight and you've been looking at your resume and your failures and your brokenness and you think there's no way God could love me. No one's beyond God's grace. Because this passage teaches us the way that we have marvelous faith, the way we cause Jesus to marvel, it's not being born to a certain family. It's not being raised in the church. It's not checking the list of religious works. It's none of those things. It's by having a full confidence in Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. So tonight, please see that if you are weary and heavy laden and burdened, you can find rest in Jesus. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful that you gave us this amazing example of faith. And we're so grateful that it came from an unlikely candidate. Because Father, a lot of us, when we look at our lives and we look at our resumes, we recognize that, man, we, we just don't cut it on our own. And the reality is there's no one that cuts it on their own. We have all sinned. We've all disobeyed you. We all fall short of your glory and your standard. But the reality is forgiveness is offered in Jesus. So Father, let that promise be real to us tonight. If there's anybody that hasn't put their faith in Jesus and they're carrying around pain and weights and burdens, let them drop those at the foot of the cross tonight. And Father, I just pray for all of us that do have a relationship with you. Help us to never be entitled. Help us never to presume upon your grace, but help us to live in humble submission and worship every single day for the love you've shown us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.